Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, and I'm so excited that you've joined me again this week. I have a fantastic guest for you. She's not only an incredibly well-known fashion designer, she's also someone I call a friend. Rebecca Minkoff, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to be here with you today. I have a list of accolades and awards as long as my arm, but I think that everybody just wants to really understand every little girl... And a lot of little boys grow up wanting to be fashion designers, and you are living that dream. So can you start me off at the very beginning and tell me, how did a young girl from San Diego become a woman with a multi, multi-million dollar fashion house known throughout the world? It really started with a very simple, I would love this dress that I saw in the window. It was probably 20 bucks. And my mom was like, no. I'm not going to buy that for you, but we'll go and buy fabric that looks like that in a pattern at Michael's or whatever was around then. And I was so angry and resentful. Like, why can't you just spend 20 bucks on a dress? Right. We got home. We got the fabric. She taught me how to sew. And I instantly became hooked on the idea that I could make something that was in my head come to life. And I think that only increased as I got older and I was painfully thin which I should have really been excited about and embraced. But to be bullied over it and to not fit into regular clothing, couldn't find my size, to be able to then go make clothes for myself was incredibly empowering and fun. And so I just got hooked from a very young age on sewing and designing and going to thrift stores and recreating clothing. That continued all the way till I was 18 when I had to make a decision, do I go to school, do I not? And my parents are not very traditional. And they said, if you want to go to school, you can. We're not paying for it. (laughs) So what do you want to do? And I said, I want to go to work. How did your mom learn to sew? Where did that start? She learned from her mom. And in the 70s, as a flower child or the 60s, she made a lot of her own clothes. So interesting. And that really developed into something that you took on as your own. And was it a particular style that you loved? Or was it just anything you wanted to wear? It was anything that I wanted to wear. And especially as I got older in my teenage years, I was definitely altering a lot of clothing. I didn't have a lot of money. So to be able to afford things, you know, that were in the store, you know, couldn't get them. So, you know, my mom had this rule, like, I'm never going to buy you that item, but I'll buy you the fabric. To make it. To make it. It's amazing because this obviously is called Claim Your Confidence. And you talk about being bullied, even as a young girl. And I wonder, as you've lived your life, how did that impact you? as a young girl, and what have you learned and what do you teach your children now about bullying and being bullied? Because those are two great lessons, I'm sure, that you can see both sides of it and you know what that feels like and also perhaps how to keep it from happening. I mean, it's very different today because of social media, so I'm sure it's a lot worse than what you and I experienced. But I just remember feeling so, like, awful about myself, you know, and, like, Every day I was obsessed with drinking protein shakes, hoping that that would make me gain weight. And now I look back, I'm like, why did I let it even get to me? But you don't know as a young child, you know, is that better off to be that side than maybe trying to struggle with weight loss at a young age? Yeah. And so I think I just, I'm trying to teach my kids to be kind. Mm -hmm. 
Both of my sons are very kind. My daughter has a streak in her of like, oh, that person's so ugly. Or, oh, or she'll look at me and like point and I'm like, oh, God. Don't even start. <laughs> Don't, Don't be even one of those start. people. I know. I feel like I have that conversation with my oldest daughter a lot because she's 10. And what I often say to her is it's so easy to be the mean girl. It's so easy. It's such an easy out to say mean things. It's much more difficult, and it's a much more intelligent child who can step back and be the kind person who always brings people into the conversation and is a true leader. Yeah. And I do think that that's something that we as parents, having grown up when we grew up and now actually seeing social media in our children's hands, have the foresight to say, because it is something that affects everyone at some level in their life. And frankly, even through social media now. A hundred percent. And I see it in her face when she's about to say something to me and I'm like, don't, don't do it. Yeah. You know, and I'll whisper and I'll be like, tell me later. You can yeah. tell me privately what your inner thoughts are. Okay. Right. Right. That's <laughs> don't it. Say it tell loud. me privately. We'll just go later and you can tell me everything that you need to tell me. Girls are so incredibly complicated. And oh my God, and where'd women. you learn it from? Right. Like, I know. But I feel like that's also, again, going back to the confidence thing, you learn over the course of your life what feels good and what feels bad. And I truly believe that the confident people are the ones who can always throw compliments around because they don't look around looking for other people to validate who they are and what they're doing. Yeah. And I feel like if we go back to your story, you've moved to New York now at the age of 18, is that correct? 18. And you arrive in New York, you have fabric, obviously, and this dream of what? Was it to open your own fashion brand? Was it to design a couple of cool things you could sell in stores? What are you thinking about when you're 18 years old? When I was 18, I had a paid, when I say paid, it was like less than minimum wage, but of course, paid internship. <laughs> New York City, yeah. With a designer. So to me, it was like the most glamorous thing, like yeah. moving to New York, living in my friend's dorm at Fordham when they didn't <laughs> check security. So I slept on his couch and then living on my cousin's playroom floor. Right. Um, Real step up there. <laughs> <laughs> huge step up. I had to pretend that I wasn't there every day. So everything had to be cleaned up every morning. And I just wanted to learn the industry, you know? And so. I arrived thinking, ugh, I'm going to be in the design room and it's going to be fabulous. And my first day I was organizing the supply closet and shipping. Yeah. And I was like, I moved here for this? What? I'm better than this. I'm better than this. (laughs) Where's my office? (laughs) But the CEO really took me under her wing in the fact that she didn't hand me anything, but she taught me the value of hard work and learning every area of a business. And when she could see, you know, she did say to me, she said, you know, Craig, the designer, she's like, he always hires like dumb, pretty girls. I hope you're not one of those. Thanks. And I was (laughs) like- Back to our conversation about things you should keep as an inner monologue, as it turns out. Yes. And I was like, I'm going to prove to you that I'm not a dumb, pretty girl. And once she saw like I would work hard and I was diligent, she just sort of opened up opportunities for me within the company. That's such a great point about the early internship, too, because so much is said about those starting jobs and what you're asked to do. A large part of my first job at Christie's as an intern was wiping the table after lunch. I mean, that was really something that I knew our boss was very into. He was very particular about that, and nobody else wanted to do it. And I remember thinking, what's the big deal? I'll just wipe the table, and then he'll be happy, and then maybe he'll think of me to do other things. And in fact, those tasks grew very quickly because he realized that I was someone who would never let 
I would never leave a room and let things look ugly as I left. It was always about me, for me, presentation. And when I became an event planner for Christie's, that was so much a part of my job. Yeah. And so you're at this fashion house, you're probably delivering samples on a bike somewhere in New York City. If my friends who had jobs that were similar to that at the time, you know, it was sort of getting yelled at by every celebrity assistant who needed showroom samples or, you know, going and doing all of these things that nobody would ever think that was glamorous. But did you love it? I loved it, except for the CEO would have me go pick up her kid from school. Right. And I was like, I don't remember this being part of the job description, <laughs> but I don't really have a say here. So yeah, yeah. I think those are different days when yes. you could do stuff like that. I think they were definitely different days. <laughs> and so at what point did you start to transition into, I'm going to start my own line? So pre the internet, pre social media, I was very efficient and I... I ended up getting hired about six months in. I actually worked with the design team for about two and a half years, but there was only so much work to be done. I know that might sound crazy, but then it ended. Yeah, there was an end of the day, <laughs> just in case you in case you were not born after 2000. Days they, used to end. They stopped. It yeah. was like, oh, this is all the work we have today. There was nothing more to be done. <laughs> and you can't get in touch with anyone because probably there weren't even cell phones being actively used at all no. times then. Correct. Yeah. It was a fax machine. Yes. So the CEO was totally fine with me working on my own stuff. And so I had designed a very small five-piece collection. I think the office staff thought it was so cute. Like, let me help this little girl out. So like the graphic designers and my first logo and the designer helped me source the fabrics. And I had a little photo shoot. Speaking of confidence, I was like, oh, I have to make a thousand lookbooks and send them out because I want to be overwhelmed with orders. <laughs> and I'm going to spend my entire savings making these beautiful photo shoot with these gorgeous lookbooks. And I'm going to cut the patterns, spend my bat mitzvah money. I'm going to cut all the patterns just to be ready for production because I'm going to be like deluged with orders. Rebecca Minkoff, here I am. I've arrived. <laughs> Age Zero 19. orders later. Oh, no. <laughs> $10,000 wasted. Yeah, so that was my first foray. It was like this crazy, like I got to prepare and get ready and then nothing happened. And what did you learn from that? What was the lesson you took away? Definitely wait till you have some orders before you go into production on things. Well, I think that's a, probably a great first lesson, <laughs> isn't it? And to find product market fit, you know, what ended up happening was this simple silk top that I designed. A couple of boutiques picked it up and then I would go stand in Union Square and pass out postcards and tout this American designer that had arrived. And then it would slowly sell. And so it was just like, it wasn't the denim suit that I thought it was going to be my signature. It was the silk top. And then from there, it was a t-shirt, an I Love New York shirt that I had literally bought on Canal Street, cut up, bedazzled it, because that was a trend that hopefully we don't ever have to revisit. I'm sure it's coming back. And that's what really got my name out there. So it wasn't, you know, the magnum opus in my head. It was a simple idea. And it was Jenna Elfman, is that correct? And she went on the Jay Leno show? Yes. Yeah, so I sent her the shirt pre 9 11. She wore it post 9 11. He asked her about it on TV. Again, no social media. TV had the power to transform brands. And that's all I did for about nine months was make that shirt. I'd go down to Canal Street on my bike. There's one e commerce site. I said, You got to prepay me if you want this because I don't have any money. So <laughs> spent all my money on the first lookbook. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then that's what I did. And kind of right after 9-11, the company I was working for went through huge financial losses and whatever. And she was like, you know what? We're thinning the team. You're clearly passionate about what you're doing. You have to make a choice. Either you're all in with us or you're all in on you. And I know the answer. 
Wow. That's what she said? Yeah. That's amazing. And I was like, did Wait, you know you're going to fire me? <laughs> <laughs> and you said, said differently, I've just lost my job, <laughs> is what you're saying to me. Yes. What an amazing story and what an incredible woman, actually, to position it that way. Yeah. Did you know on the inside that this was your next step? Were you ready to go or was I this was sort ready of, to go. Ready I to felt go. suffocated, not from anything they were doing, but I was just so excited about what I thought I could build. And so what happened next? So you've made 700 of these I Love New York t-shirts, but that's not an entire brand. So no. what happened next? So I decided to double down on apparel now that my brand was known and had like a real apparel line. I made money on the side by being a stylist. I had gotten lucky and met a director again through Jenna, who I call my fairy godmother, and he hired me for all his shoots. So like all the Bravo shows were starting. So I did Project Runway. I did Top Chef. So all that money just went back into the business. And I had the clothing line, and it was fine. It was never like this big bump. And after four years, I was exhausted. I was $60,000 in credit card debt, which I didn't know how I was going to pay. And Jenna came back to me and she said, do you design bags? And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, I do. Sure can. As of and today. As of today, right now. The answer is always yes. <laughs> the answer is always yes. Um, and she said, cool, I need it in two weeks. It's a really big role for a movie. And I was like, mm-hmm, great. I knew where to get leather because I'd been making leather jackets. I asked a couple of friends where, you know, local handbag factories were. Made two samples of the bag. It was about 1600 bucks. It was really my last 1600 bucks, And shipped it. FedEx delivered it late. It did not make it to the movie. The assistant called me and was like, where is the bag? Oh, my gosh. I was like, it's, it'll be there any minute. Just delay shooting, Okay. They're like, no, we're not delaying shooting. We've used another bag. So that was like another moment where you're just like, oh, this was my chance. Right. And so I had the one sample and I started wearing it around. Ironically, where we're recording, I was stopped on Fifth Avenue near Bendel's. Women were just like, who makes that bag? And it happened enough that I was like, okay, maybe I give this bag a shot. this This is basically what you learned with the silk shirt early on, right? Yep. One item, not always what you think it's going to be. Right. And here we go. And that was how it started. And so where did it go from there? So people stop you on the street. They see this bag. They love it. And then is it a buyer contacts you next? My friend is a buyer at the time for a store in LA that had like all the hottest, newest, latest brands. And she said, I'm going to buy 12. And then my friend at Daily Candy, if anyone is... um, I remember Daily Candy. Great newsletter. Trying to figure out the new age cutoff for those who know Daily Candy. I feel like it's like 37. (laughs) (laughs) That would be like Uh, the skim for anyone who's a little younger than us, Rebecca. Perfect. That's a great uh, Just sort of giving you the higher level, what's hot, you know, but it was really the only one that was coming out at the time. So people used it as the sort of fashion Bible. Yeah. And it was when you wanted email to come into your inbox. So you were looking forward to the one hottest thing. So she said, my friends at Daily Candy, she'll write about the bag. We'll credit Satine the store and let's just see what happens. And it sold out six times over. Oh my goodness. They came back like the next day and said, we need 75 units. And then they came back again and you could just see this power in this bag. And I was like, all right, let's go. And what was it about the bag that was different? What was the differentiator, do you think? I think that at the time, it was 2005, it was all about the It bag Mm -hmm. or whatever Sarah Jessica Parker was wearing. Right. And those bags were like, 
the Fendi Spy, the Chloe Paddington. And that'd be great at first, but three months later, you're like, oh, she's still wearing, like everyone has that bag now. And also so expensive. So expensive. I mean, just crazy for someone, most of us dying to wear something fashionable at this point are still making, you know, less than $20,000 a year yes. working for these glamorous jobs that we have, yes. wiping tables and such, making no money, but coveting all of these crazy expensive bags that we that are so out of touch. Correct. Yeah. So I entered in at a price point at the time, which was extraordinarily affordable, like right. sub $500. Yeah. And it was a bag that didn't have a logo blasted all over it. So it, it was more subtle. It was longer lasting, but still felt trend right. right. And then I wanted to connect it to a moment that as women, we have so many of these first experiences that our bag is usually like pivotal in those moments. So I was like, well, sex in the city is the rage and I'd like to have a walk of shame. So let's call it the morning after. It's so great. <laughs> the, just a marketing genius right there. I mean, just knowing your audience, but also being that person, right? In yeah. your early twenties in New York, that's sort of what you're seeing on sex in the city and anyone living here can relate. And then you and your brother decide to launch Rebecca Minkoff. Is that how that happened? So I called my dad when I got that second production order because there was no more money left and the credit card was... There was, <laughs> was no, no more, more money left in the credit card either as it turned And my out. dad was a co-signer on the card, so he didn't pay for it, but he was like the fall guy. And he was like, uh-uh, I'm not helping you. I don't even know how you're going to pay this back. And he's like, call your brother. You know, he's really great at business. And my brother had a software company and had also launched one of my parents' companies. And he was like, how much do you need? I was like, I need 2,500 bucks for leather and I don't know, a thousand for hardware. And so he loaned me the money. I paid him back and then he kept doing that, but the numbers were growing, you know, and I'd be yeah. like, I need 10,000, I need 15. And he was just like, oh, this is something, you yeah, know. This so, is a real business now. Yeah. He's like, okay, we're going to make this official. We're going to get you a tax ID and a bank account and make this a real operation. And that was kind of how it begun. It's amazing. So this is 2005. Are you married at this point? Are you having children? Because no one else is in this booth with us, but I can tell you that Rebecca showed up looking so stunning in a denim jumpsuit. I mean, only you, Rebecca, pregnant with her fourth child who is due in six weeks. So I just want to say to anyone out there who wants to understand what the hustle looks like, I am looking at the hustle <laughs> right now. Had you had your first child yet at this point? No, I hadn't even met my husband yet. Hadn't even met your husband I met yet. my husband a year later. My company was in 2006. It was me and an intern working out of my fifth floor walk-up. And my husband was in a band and I was like, oh, he's going to fund my lifestyle. This will be great. <laughs> how did that work out? <laughs> a little different. A little different than you originally thought, which is often how it works. That's great. So, well, you met your husband when then? So this is 2005? I met him in 2006. Six. Okay. In January of 2006. And you're growing your business. It's you and an intern. So how do you get from that point in 2005 to where we are now? And I know that there are going to be a lot of pitfalls along the way, but what was it for you that helped you become not only Rebecca Minkoff selling, you know, a morning after bag, but rather Rebecca Minkoff, whose name is synonymous with a global fashion brand. You have clothes, you have shoes, you have purses. I mean, it's everything. So how do you develop that? And what does it take to keep going? Because I'm sure there were a lot of no's along the way. Oh my God. There's still a lot of no's. I think being able to adapt, being resilient and being innovative, we were just handbags. And we started hearing enough, oh, but you're just a handbag brand. Mm. And we knew that we could get stuck really easily. And there was a perception at the time, if you're just one thing, you can't be a brand. Yeah. So we took a risk. 
relaunched clothing, which was so expensive and so much work, but it really is the backdrop sort of, you know, it's the frame with which you see and contextualize who the woman is. Right. So that was really important. And then we did shoes and jewelry. And if I'm being honest, we expanded too fast. And Was that building bricks and mortar or what was too fast about that? Just the launches, the new category launches and when we did them, we just weren't staffed up to do it right. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of hits and misses. We had a lot of times where stuff didn't work. But I think we said, even though we know this isn't working, it's important that we're still able to tell this brand story and get it right. And that takes a lot of time and work. And now we get to be known as a brand versus she's just a bag designer. And if you look at the the cohort of brands that I launched with that sort of dug their heels in, you know, they're no longer around. It's all about innovation. And that really is who you are. And that's who I know you as. And that's even where I sort of met you in my own journey and have been so inspired by the fact that you continually innovate and are always the first person to try something new. But I want to talk a little bit about the work-life balance because I wrote a chapter in my new book, Claim Your Confidence, that says we should say farewell to the myth of the work-life balance because you and I both know, I have three children, you've had three and are about to have four. There really is no work-life balance, especially when you're somebody who's building a company. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you've done just to ensure that your life doesn't go so one-sided, that it's all work all the time? Because I know that a lot of founders struggle with this. Yeah, I wish there was a magic answer. I will definitely say that pre-children, all I did was work and that's all I cared about. Both my husband and I were building, you know, he was rebuilding his career after the music industry like imploded and I was building Rebecca Minkoff and it was just like the high five C on the other side. Yeah. But I did make a very conscious decision when I had my first, like I want to be the person to raise them. I don't want to farm this kid out to other people. Yeah. And so to be home at six o'clock for bath time and dinner and be present on the weekends. And that's not easy. No. It was never always perfect. And I had to travel, but I said, you know, for the first year, I'm a breastfeeding mom. They're going to come. The nanny's coming. If that means I lose sleep and I'm in Korea with a jet lag baby, like at least he's with me. Right. So I would say that I erred on the side of making it harder on myself in order to achieve some semblance of balance. And then I think you have to experiment and each woman is different. Like, what are your boundaries? Where is the time where you say no? Right. And that changes with each child. Yes, absolutely. And then one weekend after like being on my phone all weekend, I was like, what happens if I don't respond to an email? What's the worst? I'm not curing cancer. Yeah. And I just remember, and this wasn't that long ago, maybe five or six years when I did that. And it was, how liberating was it to just be like, I don't check email on the weekends. If it's urgent, text me. Yeah. And nothing bad happened. No. There were no crises. And I was like, okay, how much more can I push this? I'm not checking my email at night. You know, like I just was like, where do things start to fall apart? Right. And there's different phases of your company where you're in building mode and you have to. And I can't give good advice to a woman who's building a company and pregnant. Yeah. Because she's not going to have balance. Right. 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 I have a friend who built an incredible lingerie company and... She didn't have a maternity leave. She worked all the time. And, you know, I tell women, like, if you can choose to separate those two activities, please do it. Yeah, and let us all know how you did that. (laughs) I remember having a conversation with you about pumping at work because this was something that I felt very strongly about. I was 
when I had my first child, I just didn't have a ton of milk. And so it was something that completely stressed me out all the time. And at the time, you know, this was my first, my oldest daughter's 10. So we weren't where we are now where people are creating these, you know, elaborate lactation rooms and allowing for great places for you to go. And I worked in an office that was 15 minutes basically if I did the round trip to go up to the one mother's room and it was only available at certain times during the day. And of course we were all on the same schedule because we were all getting there. And as you know, it's sort of like three to four hours in, you're going to pump. And I remember saying to my team, all females, I just want to ask you guys something. If I were to just sit here with this pump and put it on right now, would you guys be okay with that? Because then I wouldn't be gone for 45 minutes, three times a day and sprinting out of here at six o'clock to get home for the last feed because I just don't have enough milk. And, you know, they didn't really know what to say because they were all in their late 20s and early 30s. And I, I remember saying to them, this is the most horrific thing you've ever seen. You will never see anything that is Birth this control. bad. It's like, I promise, this is really something to be seen. And I just took off my shirt and did it. And I remember their faces. They were all sort of like, wow, okay. And I did it for my first child. And then I came back for my second maternity leave and did it then. And then again with a third child. And one of the women on my team called me to tell me the day she was going in that she was pumping in front of her team. And I remember thinking, I've never been so proud of anything because yeah. I feel like this is real life. And if we want women in the workplace, this is what we have to do. Right. Not always, if it's a room full of guys and you work on a team of guys, that's not going to work. But what can you do to just get on with your day and make it so easy that you can actually just keep doing everything you were doing and not think about it constantly? And that I think lends itself to a better work-life balance, honestly, if you're not constantly stressed about having to pull yourself out of the room and do other things. And so I applaud the fact that you've done this, not three, but about to be four times. And in a room of men. So speaking of breastfeeding, I first met you in Las Vegas. We were both speaking at the SAP conference, and this was 2018. So pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, and frankly, in many ways, pre-shift in culture for women. This was before the rallies, the women's rally, and you were having a show that was women breastfeeding while the models were on stage. So there were models, they were moms, they had their babies. If they needed to breastfeed, they could. And I remember just thinking it was the most incredible thing. And this has always been what you do. You are working with inclusive sizing many years before anyone was discussing it. Diversity of models. I mean, this has been your drumbeat since you started. Where does all of that come from for you? Is this just what you were seeing and you wanted to put a stake in the ground and be on the right side of history? Or what did this do and how did this happen for you? Some of this comes naturally and some of this comes from just wanting to set an example. So as far as having diverse models, I've just always felt like they're just far more beautiful. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So that's been from the beginning, not like, oh, we have to have a checkmark black model and Latina and Chinese. It's just been like, wow, look at the breadth of beauty that exists. Yeah. So that was a no-brainer. Something like size inclusivity. We, ironically, we were only offering, this was before we did the show, we were only offering extra small. And then due to fabric minimums and costs, not offering beyond extra large. And we got enough women that were like, why don't you offer more? I said, if you buy it, I'll make it. Yeah. You know, and so we got enough women that we felt like, okay, this will work. 
So that was the, you know, hearing from my customer was the need to create more inclusive sizing. Something like breastfeeding was we were going through the show and the whole show's theme or presentation theme was like women in the workplace Mm -hmm. and different thematic rooms of what was going on. And I was like literally looking over the rooms as I was pumping and I was like, we need a pumping room. Or maybe we need a breastfeeding mom in the show because this is what I, you know, like I mentioned, I pumped in front of my board because I was like, I there is nowhere to go and I have to go along with my work day and my medela pump fits in my back pocket and I have my cover. You can't see it. You, you can just it. hear yeah, it. Exactly. Let's yeah. just make this easier and show that it's okay to go about your day like you did. Yeah. And just keep going. It's yeah. just normal. It's like eating lunch. Yes. Putting my pump on. Let's keep talking. Yeah, absolutely. The only place I ever felt like it got really awkward was in Japan. And I literally cleared a room out. I was like, well, guys, I got a pump. And like, you've never (laughs) seen people scatter. (laughs) They're like, that's not what we're going to do here today. Thank you for coming. Um, But outside of that, I've never run into any issues. So for me, it was just another like, okay, here's a moment where I'm consciously saying this should be normal. Yes. This shouldn't be pressworthy. Yeah. But sadly, right now it is, you know? And so for me, sometimes it's natural and sometimes it's like, no, we have to set an example and we have to showcase and stick our necks out. And you did that again in 2018 because you announced you would no longer be showing at New York Fashion Week and you instead chose to focus efforts on a new project called Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff. So that was just for that Fashion Week Mm -hmm. because I was also pregnant and about to have a baby And I just knew that that was not going to work. So, you know, that was during a time where the Women March was very important, you know, something to stand on and to claim as like we need equal rights for women. Mm -hmm. And so that was how we participated. And then we showcased... Um, maybe there's a people I wouldn't have showcased now in that campaign. (laughs) But at the time, very inspirational women. And then you started the Female Founders Collective. That same year. That same year. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's also had offshoots as well. Yeah. So a couple of things happened because you might be listening and going like, how did she start a podcast? How did she start another thing? Like she's had a baby and she's a designer. When I went on maternity leave for that third baby, which I thought was my last, we strategically took a team of 18 direct reports and had it go down to one. I hired my first creative director. I sort of released the reins and it's like, okay, I didn't pick that exact hardware color, guys. I'm sorry. Or that Pantone was picked by someone else. It's okay. Pass the buck a little. Yeah. And definitely had an identity crisis. Like, who am I if I didn't decide the blah? But it freed up a lot of time not having 18 people. Yeah. And so with that time, I said, you know, what am I passionate about? It's about telling women's stories. And as a founder, as a woman, like there, you can't go to your team when, when you have these moments that are so messed up, you don't know where to go. And I just found that I'm sitting here on these panels. We're all complaining about the wage gap. Nothing's changing. What is the shortest circuit to change? And to me, it was money, money, money flowing to women. Yeah. And how do I do that? Well, if founders can be more successful, my hope is that women will hire more women, pay them better, give them better maternity leaves, have lactation rooms that are open, not during certain hours. And so for me, it was how do you create a community that can support each other and educate each other? And then I was lucky enough to meet my co-founder, Allison Wyatt, and we really doubled down on the education piece for women as well. 
And you've continued it on because you've just launched The North, which is an advisory service for women, which I'm a proud member of as an advisor, which is fantastic because you sort of do these half-hour meetings with women and they come in so prepared. That's what I found. I think I've done five or six now. Oh, wow. Half an hour and the women come to the call with a list of questions yeah. and they're desperate for advice, yeah. you know, and it's such an amazing way to be able to give back in a timely manner and also meet and really expand your network as well, which is exciting. It's that, but also our first launch, obviously, women like you donated your time, but we also said you should be paid for your time. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much like, just just can I have your ear for a coffee? Right. And you're like, I worked so hard for this, and yes, I want to give back, but at a certain point, you should pay for the knowledge that I've worked hard to get. And so we really wanted to make sure that the balance of fairness in this opportunity was for both women. And I don't have a single disappointed customer. And I doubt that many of the advisors have that as well. So we really wanted to make sure that like you get paid for your time. Yeah. And it's great. And I honestly feel like that is such another way that you're moving things forward because there is that expectation always. And I certainly saw this in my own family. My mother was an incredible volunteer. I mean, she has volunteered my entire life and has such incredible expertise. And never at one point did anyone say to her, you should turn this into a job. Maybe this is something you should do as a consultant. And I watched that my whole life. And as a result of that, I am very focused on making money always. I'm part of the equation in our family that makes our life work. And without me, our life doesn't work. So I'm constantly looking for ways to make money and opportunities to do that. And I really enjoy it. And I know you do too, which is fun to say, because I think for a long time, people were sort of like, well, you shouldn't really talk about money. Actually, you should talk about money. It's probably the most important thing that you'll ever talk about in your life because without it, you don't have any options. And that's the truth. Correct. Yeah. And Allie really taught me, like, I remember we were going to go to Cannes and this company wanted to have a number of podcasts as part of this. And I was like, well, I don't even know what to ask for. And she's like, throw out a number that makes you want to throw up. Yeah. And I was like, oh God. And I did. <laughs> and the people were like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. This is now what I charge. Yeah. I learned that even in speaking because for many years people would ask me to come speak for different opportunities. And when my first book came out, as I said, we, we met in Las Vegas and we were both paid for that opportunity to be there. But I learned to very quickly ask now, and I would say this to anyone who's listening who is a professional speaker who wants to become a professional speaker, one of the first things you should always ask when someone asks you to speak is what is the speaker's budget? Because not always... Nine times out of 10 times, there will be some budget set aside for a speaker. And you can always choose to donate your time, but you shouldn't have to. And Correct. I think that's a huge distinction. So one of the last things I want to say, when we go back to innovation, I will never forget, I was running strategic partnerships at Christie's and I get a call from Rebecca shortly after the NFT craze started with an idea for a fashion show. She wanted to do an NFT drop. And I was still mastering the language, language of NFT, even though I was working for the company that had really put NFTs on the map in the art world. And you were already full guns blazing, full steam ahead. And I really think that is who you are. And I think the most incredible title of a book I've heard was your title, which was Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success, which is what I think about when I think about you. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Rebecca. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Where can everyone find you? Tell us about your podcast and your Instagram and everything. 
Yes. So you can follow me at Rebecca Minkoff on Instagram. My podcast is called Super Women with Rebecca Minkoff. And I have a book where you can buy wherever books are sold, Fearless, which you just mentioned. And the one thing I will say about confidence is it doesn't always come easily. It's not something everyone is innately born with, right. but there are things that everyone is confident about. And if you can take that when you're feeling your worst in another area and sort of transition that feeling of, I'm a great cook, but I'm a terrible speaker. You know, what are the qualities you feel when you're cooking that you can transfer over to your speaking or whatever it is? And then I liken it to a muscle. You just have to practice. Yeah. And you got to fake it a lot. And everyone's faking it all the time. I just have. (laughs) (laughs) And then it becomes better. And it's just like, you want those abs? You better do those workouts. It's like the same with whatever you're trying to get better at. Yeah. Practice makes perfect. Not perfect necessarily, but it certainly makes it easier, doesn't it? I love that advice. Well, I want to thank all of our listeners who are tuning in again to claim your confidence. You can also find me, Lydia Finette, on Instagram. I have a website, www.lydiafinette.com. And I hope if you are visiting New York, you will stop by, and Rebecca can attest to this, the coolest coolest podcast booth there is. I'm in One Rock Plaza. (laughs) It's so fun. It has a plate glass window in the front so you can stop by. We can see everyone walking back and forth and wave to them as they go. Thanks to Rockefeller Plaza for hosting this podcast and always to Joe, my producer, who makes this all go so smoothly. So follow along at Rockefeller Center. We'll be posting updates and upcoming guests. Rebecca, thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me. 